Hello, RTX. Welcome to the Black Box Down Panel, our first ever Black Box Down Panel. Hopefully it doesn't end in a terrible incident or disaster. <laughs> but if it did, we would you would be able to detail exactly it's, how it's, it went wrong. It's up to you to document it. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm Gus. I'm one of the hosts of the show, and I've got a couple people joining me today. Why don't you all introduce yourselves? Hello, I'm Chris Damaris, and I'm uh, uh, Gus's, uh, um, I don't know, co-pilot, right... A uh, little, little like gremlin that's sit, the gremlin that's that's like outside the plane. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm Dennis. I'm the producer for Black Box Down. I do a lot of the research and writing, and I also edit it as well. Yeah. And uh, when we're typically when we're taping, uh, if we have a question or something comes up, uh, Dennis is always there to uh, chime in and answer. Normally, you don't hear those parts of the episode; they all get edited out. But uh, we're doing a live episode reading today. We're gonna we weren't. Planning on doing this episode, but since we were doing RTX, we thought, why don't we do uh, an episode and uh, have everyone watch while we do it? I don't even have chat up. What's wrong with me? I should pull chat up. I do. I do. We'll, I got we'll be it. reading chat. Um, and you can see what it's like uh, as we actually do an episode and uh, what it looks like before it's all done and uh, released to you guys. Okay, I got it. I'm going gonna, gonna to pull chat up and then we'll go ahead and get started. We don't have a ton of time to do this, so we're going to go ahead and... Uh, do this episode and then we'll uh, take some, we, we solicited some questions via social media that we have that we're going to be answering when we're all done with this and uh, we'll jump over to those. Uh, you guys uh, ready to uh, go ahead and uh, get started on this episode here? Yeah. And if, if people watching, if you see me like looking around, that's me jotting notes because I take notes. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. And if you see me looking around, I got uh, I got chat over here. I got uh, our video over here. I got my scripts over here. I got other stuff over here. It's I got monitors everywhere. June 24th, 1982. Captain Eric Moody is at the controls of British Airways Flight 9, cruising over the Indian Ocean just south of Indonesia. Suddenly, something goes wrong. Captain Moody decides to make an announcement to the passengers. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have a small problem. All four engines have stopped. We're doing our damnedest to get them going again. I trust you are not in too much distress. All four of this Boeing 747's engines have flamed out and the plane with 263 people on board is now starting to lose altitude and fall to the sea below. The cabin begins to fill with smoke. The flight crew reports seeing strange blue lights on the plane's windscreen and passengers begin scribbling goodbye notes to loved ones. What is the ultimate fate of British Airways Flight 9? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, we got Gus and Chris here bringing uh, another episode to you. Uh, this week we've got British Airways Flight 9. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. Uh, I hope you're not too distressed. <laughs> Can you imagine being on that plane? <laughs> all four engines have gone out. So imagine how quiet it is on a plane without the engines on. Like You can tell yeah. all four engines are off. <laughs> the plane starting huh. to go down and the captain comes on and says, hope you're not too distressed. Well, but there, you might not inherently notice it if you're like sleeping. Or, you know, You may not know anything's wrong if it's just really quiet. Yeah, you know? uh, but I mean, this is like the sound goes away. You know, it's that droning sound that you normally hear on an airplane is all of a sudden Ooh. gone. And oh yeah, I'll, I'll get That'd to be really I'll, creepy. I'll get to the details more here in a bit. But the passengers who were looking out the window reported before the the engines went out, they could see long plumes of flame shooting out from the engines, going down the whole length of the plane. Uh, then the engine stopped. Oh, and then there were weird blue lights enveloping the plane as well. So aliens. So something definitely <laughs> strange. Uh, before we get uh, too much further into the episode, I want to remind people they can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Blackboxdownpod. 
Uh, we always post supplemental uh, photos, stuff that we can't necessarily describe on an audio podcast. You can go f- check it out over there and uh, get some more details about what it is exactly that we're talking about. Uh, okay, so a little bit of background first. Like I said, June 24th, 1982, British Airways Flight 9. It's a Boeing 747. We've talked about the 747 before. It's that jumbo plane. It's got the super iconic hump on the front. Uh, it was a passenger flight. It was going from London to Auckland, but it had stops in Bombay, India, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, Perth, and Melbourne. Australia, by the way. Uh, the aircraft uh, was a Boeing 747 known as the City of Edinburgh. And the flight was crewed by 41-year-old Captain Eric Moody, 32-year-old First Officer Roger Greaves, and 40-year-old Engineer Barry Townley Freeman. And uh, the first couple legs of this flight went by pretty uneventfully, nothing out of the ordinary. And the plane took off for, of, uh, on this leg uh, from Kuala Lumpur with 247 passengers on board. And the weather was looking good. They uh, no storms in the in the sky. They thought it was going to go pretty smoothly. Uh, however, unbeknownst to them at the time, they were heading in the direction of a volcano that had just erupted. A volcano? Yeah. So a uh, little bit of volca- volcanic interference that we're about to get into here. Oh my so, God! This is the first volcano incident. Yeah, that we've ever had. Uh, yeah, we have not done anything like this one before. I feel like I'd remember a volcano. <laughs> so at around. 1.40 p.m. UTC, which is 8.40 p.m. Jakarta time, uh, the flight was cruising south of the island of Java at 37,000 feet. Uh, Captain Moody decided to take a look at the area in front of them using the onboard weather radar system, and he saw there's nothing going on. going to be smooth uh, flight, and uh, he got up to go use the bathroom. That's probably why he checked the weather before he got up, wanted to make sure it was okay. So uh, he leaves the, the cockpit to go to the, uh, to the restroom. Uh, he exits the cockpit, and the restroom that's closest to the cockpit was occupied. So uh, he couldn't use that one. So he had to make his way down the stairs, because the 747, like I said, had that hump where they mm-hmm. were. So he had to go down the stairs and started a conversation with one of the flight attendants. Uh, this alone, think about how different that is. Nowadays, I don't know if you pay attention, when a pilot comes out of the cockpit, they always block it off. There's always flight attendants standing there so that no one rushes the cockpit. This guy just like uh-huh. got out. He's like, oh, someone's using the bathroom. Going to go take a walk through the plane. <laughs> Uh, and he goes downstairs. Huh. Okay. So, uh, like I said, he went downstairs. He starts talking to one of the flight attendants. And uh, then he's quickly called back up by another flight attendant because uh, there was some smoke that was coming out of the floor vents. And the smoke had an electrical smell to it. Uh-huh. And just as a reminder, at this time in history, smoking was allowed in planes. So, it wasn't unusual that there was smoke. People weren't super concerned about it. But the fact that it had an electrical smell uh, kind of gave the, coo- the crew a little bit of a... Uh, pause you know they were a little worried about that so uh captain moody re-enters the cockpit and he saw the most intense display of saint elmo's fire he had ever seen and saint elmo's fire is like a weather phenomenon where luminous uh-huh. plasma is created by electrical discharge from a pointed object located in a strong electrical field in the atmosphere so basically it's like electrical discharge that you can see that uh adheres to like pointy objects so is it like sparkles in the sky? Yeah. Uh, when I see drama, I've, I've seen dramatizations of this flight. It looks like, you know, when the Millennium Falcon goes into hyperspeed and like all the uh-huh. stars like turn blue and come, you know. Yeah, yeah, past. yeah. Okay. It looks kind of like that, but like little pinpoints of blue light, right? That's pretty cool. Yeah. So there's, there's this like bright blue glow that kind of looks like, you know, it's like lightning maybe. And it's kind of forming uh, on the front of the plane and, it's, you know, on the nose and the wingtips, the leading uh, edge of the wing on the aircraft. So that he's seeing on the plane, right? He see, like, like you can uh, actually see it in, in, uh, on the plane. 
So uh, Captain Moody straps himself in, and he notices the first officer and the engineer had decided to turn on the engine anti-ice systems and the passenger seatbelt signs. Uh, just preemptively, you know, they wanted to, to be safe. They, they thought things were a little weird. Do they Are they, like, alarmed by this St. Elmo's fire? It's unusual, uh, because normally they would encounter this in thunderstorms or in uh, uh-huh. in clouds. But, you know, the captain knew he had just checked his weather radar a little while ago, and there was no moisture. There's no clouds in front of them. So they should not have been seeing this under normal circumstances. So yeah. they're a little alarmed by this. But, you know, St. Normal's fire doesn't necessarily mean something's wrong. It's just it shouldn't be happening right now in this situation. Okay. So the smoke in the plane started to become thicker and was accompanied by a sulfuric smell. Uh, passengers who could see the engines also noticed that they were glowing bright blue and light was shining forward through the fan blades, producing a strobe effect. Captain Moody checked the weather radar again and saw there was nothing significant to be seen. Like I said, he's probably checking for thunderstorms or anything that could be causing the St. Elmo's fire effect. Yeah, there's no, like, protocol for, like, St. Elmo's fire, right? No, because it's not anything bad, necessarily. It's just essentially like static discharge. You think of it like rubbing your yeah. feet on the carpet and you see, like, little bits of, little you know, blue light and static electricity. Kind of like that, right? Yeah. Not exactly, but kind of like that. <laughs> like, you're not worried about it. You just don't want to touch the door handle, uh, the doorknob, or otherwise you'll get shocked. Uh, At 8.42 p.m., before the crew could discuss what was going on with the smoke, the number four engine failed. And uh, they immediately started the shutdown procedure. They shut off fuel to that engine, and they armed the fire extinguishers just in case they needed it. And uh, less than a minute later, the number two engine surged and flamed out. And then within seconds, at almost the same time, both the number one and three engines flamed out as well. So at this point, all four engines have failed. And where are they right now? They're at 37,000 feet south of Indonesia. So they're over the ocean. Okay. Because they're flying from Malaysia to Perth. So they're flying from, you know, over the Indian Ocean, kind of like where Malaysia 370 flew, you know, that part of the world over uh, over ocean. Uh, Malaysia 370 disappeared a little further south, but same general area, we'll say. So at 844, First Officer Greaves declared an emergency to the local air traffic control, stating that all four engines had failed. However, Jakarta Area Control misunderstood the message and thought that only the number four engine had failed and they had to be corrected by another nearby flight. The crew started a gliding descent and a 747 with Uh no engine thrust has a glide ratio of 15 to 1. And if you remember from our discussion about uh, the Gimli glider, that just tells you how far it can go. So basically, for every mile it drops in altitude, it can move 15 miles forward. Okay. Uh, with this glide ratio. And so this gave and, them and about... how long do they have... Oh. Yeah, that's about, that a good question. I was about to answer <laughs> that. So this gives them about 23 minutes of time, and they can glide for about 91 miles. So the plane started to glide towards land, but because of the mountainous terrain of Indonesia, the crew determined that if they were not able to maintain an altitude of at least 12,000 feet by the time they reached land, they would have to turn back to open water and ditch in the Indian Ocean. So there's I, there's mountains on the south uh, side of the island of Java that are about, I want to say they're about 11,500 feet tall. So they know that they have to at least clear that in order to be able to get back over land. And if they don't have that altitude, they're going to ditch in the sea. Damn. So the crew begins procedures to try to restart the engines, but the attempts fail. And uh-huh. uh, keep in mind, each run through of the checklist to restart an engine can take two to three minutes. So best case scenario... They had somewhere between seven and ten attempts to restart the engines before they run out of time and uh, crash. And they can't. Re- can they do multiple ones at once? Like 
I, I would normally, at this point of this, in the uh, recording, I would ask Dennis if he knows off the top of his head. Um, Not off the top of my head, but yeah. see so what we're, I can we're gonna, find we're gonna, out. We're gonna, this is one of those moments we're going to double check something. Oh, here's a good question from chat that's actually better than my question. Hmm. Uh, Jellybean01 asked, did the nearby flight experience the same thing? No, they didn't. They were not in the uh, the cloud. And the reason that the nearby flight had to clarify, I'll, I, I don't know if I explain it later in this script, was the volcanic ash was causing problems with the 747's communication as well. So it didn't have as much range as it normally did, but they had enough range to reach the other plane, and then the other plane relayed the message to air traffic control. I'll continue uh, seeing what I yeah, find. I'm, I'm going to say I don't know unless you have it uh, an answer there, Dennis. No, I'll, I'll see what I can find. If I find an answer, I'll chime in and, and okay. give an update. So it's at this time that Moody makes the announcement to the passengers that has been described as a masterpiece of understatement, which is the, <laughs> the, uh, the announcement that I read to you before, uh, which was, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have a small problem. All four engines have stopped. We're doing our damnedest to get them going again. I trust you are not in too much distress, which is maybe the most British response to this <laughs> emergency possible. Yeah. I hope this is not an inconvenience to you. Yeah. <laughs> the only the only thing is if you hadn't said damnedest. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only like well, word so you know, that suggests any sort. Yeah. So, you know, they're really trying. They're trying their best. They're trying really hard. They don't want to crash. Another side effect of all this going on is that the pressure in the cabin started to decrease and the oxygen masks were deployed. And the reason is that the engines helped to pressurize the cabin. And now, since they're not running anymore, the pressure that's been built up in the cabin has been slowly leaking out. So since there's less pressure, breathing becomes more difficult. But at least, they're, I mean, they're dropping altitude, so that gets better. It's going to get better, but they don't want to drop altitude too quickly. Yeah. However, the mask that First Officer Greaves would use was broken. The delivery tube had detached from the mask as he was about to put it on, so the crew's left with an awful decision at this point. They need to descend so the first officer can continue breathing, but if they descend, they reduce the amount of time they have to fix the problem that they're experiencing. Wait, could but do they not have a backup mask or or like a... They use separate masks in the cockpit. They use like little uh, oxygen canisters and masks that they put on themselves, uh -huh. and there's, there's no backup for that. It's, uh, it's supposed to just work, but his was broken. Oh my god. So, you know, faced with this decision, Captain Moody makes the decision to increase the rate of descent so they can get to an altitude where the pressure would allow Greaves to breathe easier. What if he just went and sat outside for a bit? Or would that mean <laughs> But they need him there. That's the thing. It's like... Okay, okay, yeah. They need him to be active in the troubleshooting and, uh, you know, addressing the problems that they're experiencing. So Moody makes the decision to increase the rate of descent so you get to an altitude uh, where the pressure would allow Greaves to breathe easier. The plane was passing through 13,500 feet and the crew was reaching their decision altitude on turning back towards the ocean. And uh, by this time in history, no one has ever attempted to ditch a 747 before. Like on to the, into the water? Right. So ditching typically implies a crash landing in the water. You only would okay. really use ditch when you're crashing in the water. So they try again to restart the engines. And at 8.56, the number four engine successfully restarted. And shortly after this, so did the number three engine. Uh, this allowed Moody to slow the descent and even start a shallow climb. Engines 1 and 2 also restarted, and the crew started a climb to clear those Indonesian mountains that we had talked about before. So they just turned back on. They just rest like, your computer messing up. Uh, just try flipping the on and off switch. Right. Well, they're going through the restart process this whole time. They've been, they've yeah, been going through Yeah, but I mean... And, yeah, then eventually, like, it works. They restart. They start, and they come back online. So, like I said, they started a climb to, to clear those Indonesian mountains. Uh, then as they reach 15,000 feet, the number 2 engine surges again and shuts down. 
So in response, the crew des descends and they maintain 12,000 feet. Oh my, it's like, like airplane blue balls. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really, uh, really appropriate uh, uh, analogy there. So the flight's directed to Halim. Oh God, I'm going to butcher this. The flight was directed to Halim Perdana Kusuma Airport in Jakarta. And as they were approaching Jakarta, the crew found it difficult to see anything through their windscreens. As they were approaching mm -hmm. Jakarta, the crew realized they were having a hard time seeing anything at all. Even though visibility in the area was good, the crew had to make their approach using only instruments. Uh, Captain Moody found a two-inch strip on the side of his windscreen that he could kind of see out of. So he tried to use that as much as he could. Wait, what was blocking it? I'll get to that in a second, uh -oh. too. So the crew opted for an ILS landing, which we've talked about before. So it's, you know, where they use the instruments and um, they can line up and they get a glide slope and it should be automated. That's fairly automated and pretty easy. Mm -hmm. You know, this would give them, like I said, a glide slope to follow to the runway. However, the vertical guidance system at the airport was inoperative. The only information the crew had to go off of was how far away from the runway they were. So First Officer Greaves had to monitor the airport's distance measuring equipment, and as they passed by each waypoint, he called out how high they should be at each point. That way they were kind of creating their own glide slope as they went. Wait, and was this a problem with the airport or the plane? It was with the airport. Their uh, their, gui their vertical guidance system was was just out. It wasn't working. They're at the, but they're at the airport. They know they're, they're going to... They're coming in. They, they know, that, they know okay. how far away they are from the airport, but they don't know uh, how what altitude they're supposed to be when they're coming in. So they're having to okay. manually read out the altitudes at each waypoint and, uh, and uh, make, uh, create their own glide slope. So they were just able to see the runway landing lights through the windscreen, but their own landing lights were inoperable, which made it really hard to see the runway. But they did actually manage to land safely. Uh, however, it was impossible for them to taxi because they couldn't see out of their windscreens. Uh, so they uh -huh. had to evacuate the plane uh, on the runway. There were no injuries. Everyone made it out of the plane safely. No, no injuries. Everyone's fine. Everyone's fine. They got the plane back on the ground. So he, he was right. You know, I hope that uh, uh, people weren't in too much distress. They ended up landing okay. Yeah. Um, I have a, this is a question from uh, Hot Potato Boogie and chat. Uh, the, so there were two engines working, correct? Two initially, and then the other ones also came back online. Yeah. And then uh, engine two uh, flamed out again. Okay, there's only one that was not working at the end of it? Correct. Okay. The question from chat was, are engines three and four on the same side of the plane? So it's it yeah. like, yeah, it was... Yeah, so one and two are on the left side of the plane, and three and four are uh -huh. on the right side of the plane. Okay. So it's like, if you're facing, if you're sitting, if you're the pilot, it's the furthest out on the left is one, the next one in is two, on your right side, the one close to the plane is three, and then the one furthest out is four. It typically numbers okay. like that. Like in a trijet, on the left side, it's one. The one on the tail is two, and the one on your right side is three. Okay. I was wondering, it's like if yeah, if like two engines, uh, two went on one side, would it they still be able to fly? Or would they be like two yeah, top? I mean, like it would be top. Yeah, I mean, it would be difficult, but they should be able to. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it would not be easy, but it, they should be able to fly if okay. it was just two engines on one side. Okay. So. This was not deemed as an accident, but rather an incident. So there was no official report by any investigation branch, uh, but there was still an investigation, uh, like a small investigation. Uh, the flight engineer uh, on this flight was convinced that this incident was caused by an encounter with volcanic ash because his hands and his clothes became covered in a fine black dust. That's why they couldn't see out their window? Right. When the flight crew exited the plane, they saw that all the leading edges Parts of the engines and nose cones were missing paint, like they had been sandblasted, uh, oh and that's what had God. happened to their their windscreen. It had been sandblast. Essentially, it had been like sandblasted by all the volcanic ash. So it was like 
like they take like someone had taken sandpaper and just rubbed it down and scratched it all up so they couldn't see. Oh. And this is when they discovered that they had flown through the volcanic ash from the eruption of Mount Galangung. Uh, because the ash was so dry, it didn't show up on any weather radar because weather radar is designed to look for moisture. <laughs> so uh-huh. the ash had just sandblasted the windscreens, the landing light covers, and it had clogged the engines. When the ash had entered the engines, it melted in the combustion chamber and had just stuck to the insides of the engine. So the melting point of volcanic ash is around 1100 degrees Celsius, which is 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, do you want to take a guess at the temperature that jet engines operate at and their internal temperature? Uh, wait, where did you say it melted? Right, wait. The, the, so the ash melted in the engine, and ash melts at 1100 degrees Celsius or 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, 3000 Fahrenheit. They operate at up to 4900 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 2700 degrees Celsius. Do you have any idea that jet engines get that hot on the inside? No. That is... <laughs> that's insanely hot. That is so hot. It's unbelievable. Like, think about it. You're on a plane. Like you talked about during the value jet episode, you talked about like having an oven above your head. This is like having super ovens all around you. Four of them. Yeah, four of them. So <laughs> what happened was the volcanic ash had gone in uh, to the combustion chambers uh, and it had melted because it's so hot in there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, all that sludge you know, got stuck up on all of the internal engine parts. And then the engine shut down. And then because they were shut down, the engines had cooled. And then this allowed that uh, ash to solidify and begin to break off as air was flowing through the engines. That's why the engines were able to restart when they were further down in their descent. Huh. So it's like, like it had gone through, it had melted, gummed everything up, but then solidified and broke off in chunks so that the engines could start spinning again. And then the engines uh. were able to restart. So they were lucky because they were lucky that there was enough electrical power to restart the engines uh, because they had one generator and the onboard batteries were still operating. Uh, and the engines uh-huh. were definitely the most affected part of this incident. And the fan blades sustained the most damage with the tips of the blades being ground away from that ash. That plane must have been like just destroyed. Yeah. I mean, it's like all the paint was sheared off. It's uh, it's super crazy. So there's a few things that uh, they theorize that helped the survivability of this incident. Mm-hmm. The first one, one pilot ensured that while checklists were being completed, the aircraft attitude and speed were always monitored. So basically, someone was always paying attention to what the plane was doing, even when checklists were going on. Yeah. Two, the emergency was managed in a rational and safe manner. They didn't panic. <laughs> they just kept their heads yeah, about them. Clearly, uh, all the engines have shut off now. Yeah, uh, we're doing our, we're doing our too, damnedest. Hope that's not too distressing. Uh, enjoy the flight. <laughs> we'll be dis- uh, we'll be giving out complimentary beverages. <laughs> <laughs> be sure to drink them fast. <laughs> uh, number three, the emergency checklists were fully utilized. We talk about checklists all the time. They're there for a reason. The crew didn't panic. They stuck to the checklist. Number four, uh, the crew continued to try to start the engines, even though for 13 minutes there was no visible reward for their efforts. Think about that. They kept trying to start the engines and it kept failing, but they kept retrying. It would have been really easy to try it a few times be like, all right, well, that's not going to work. Let's do something else. Yeah. They, you know, they stuck to the process. They stuck to what should be done. And it eventually did work. God. Uh, Number five, they used the autopilot to reduce workload so that at least one member of the crew could detach himself from the checklist and try to reason his way to a solution. So again... They're using the resources available to them, you know, in an efficient manner to try to think things through and figure out what's going on. And that's why they need the oxygen, the, the co-pilot to right. be there. Because he was, yeah. Right. They need him there to, to help with all of this. Number six, 
Where necessary, they made bold decisions, like trying to restart the number four engine and refusing to climb back into the cloud of ash. And number seven, they made full use of each crew member, aircraft system, and landing aid to ensure a safe landing. So again, I think all of these roll back to the same principles. They stayed calm and they used all of the tools available to them, be it checklists yeah. or autopilot or the systems within the plane. They just stuck to um, what should be done. And I see in chat here, uh, Hinkle Jung is asking, what about the rat? The rat did not need to deploy uh, in this case because they still had the generator and the batteries working. I think if the battery had run down or if the generator failed, then uh, a rat would have deployed. But it was, not, it was not needed this time. The rat did not have to save the day. They actually might have been worse off. I don't know if the rat... I would bet, I don't know off the top of my head, I would bet the rat uh -huh. does not generate enough power to restart an engine. Oh, I yeah, because it's, probably it's, not, It's right? so minimal. Uh, and I see someone else here, Peter H. actually, is saying uh, that this particular 747 probably did not have a rat. They probably didn't introduce a rat on it until a later version. Because this is back in, what did I say, 77? It was actually in 82. 82. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so that's what I got notes. Different time back then. All right, before we go any further, uh, I do want to say at t uh, presents RTX this year. Thanks to them, we're able to bring an awesome RTX to you. at and 5G network is now available nationwide. Uh, whether you're at home or on the go, you'll enjoy coverage in more places. Plus, at t doesn't make it complicated. 5G access is included in all consumer unlimited plans at no extra cost. Uh, for more information on at t 5G, visit att.com slash 5G. That's five times the Gs. I'm only one G. That's five Gs. <laughs> Okay, we'll talk about a little bit about the aftermath here. Um, engines one, two, and three were all replaced at Jakarta, as well as the windscreens, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, the fuel left in the tanks was contaminated, had to be disposed of, and the fuel tanks were cleaned to get all the ash out. The plane was then ferried back to London, where the number four engine was replaced, and the plane had some major maintenance done to it. You may wonder, like, how did they ferry it back to London? So it's actually uh -huh. a, a special term. It's a ferry flight. Uh, it's a special flight that requires a permit, and a permit's written and authorized by a national airworthiness authority to move a non-airworthy airplane to a place where you can get a proper maintenance and inspection in order for it to become airworthy again. So basically, they have this plane that they know isn't necessarily airworthy, but the national authority will write them an exception to move the plane so they can go get maintenance wherever it needs to get maintenance. You say move as in fly it? Fly. Yeah, they have to fly it. Who's the one who's... I'll, uh, I'll fly. I, I mean, I guess they probably have like parachutes in that kind of I, I, I don't think so. I don't think you parachute out of a of 747. But it's probably, you know, they probably put some engineers, some mechanics, and a couple of their best pilots in there to to move this plane around. Because it has to get back. They have to they, they have to be able to work on it. I mean, I, I guess I would be really nervous about a plane that had something like volcanic sand. Because it's so small and minuscule. It's like you, it could be everywhere and have destroyed everything. You don't really know. You know, it's not like a it hits something and it's like, oh yeah, the damage is yeah, going to be right. But you have to you you take their word for it that they cleaned it sufficiently, and uh, they re I mean they did replace three of the engines, so you would think that hopefully they did a good job. You have to have faith in your uh, your crew. Yeah, I guess they want the, the it's it's more about the the body of it that they're trying to save. Yeah. So um, the crew received various awards, including the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air, and medals from the British Airline Pilots Association. Uh, the plane itself was entered into the Guinness Book of Records for the longest glide in a non-purpose-built aircraft. This record, though, was broken the next year. Do you know who broke it in 1983? In 1983? Uh, no. Air Canada 143, no. the Gimli Glider, ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, broke that record uh, the next year, which was our first episode of Black Box Down. Then that record was actually broken again in the year 2001. 
by Air Transat Flight 236, which I don't want to talk too much about because we may cover that in a future episode. Okay. Uh, one of the passengers on this British Airways 9, uh, her name was Betty Toodle. Uh, she wrote a book about the accident called All Four Engines Have Failed. And uh, she managed to trace 200 of the passengers from the flight. And she ended up marrying one of the other passengers on the flight what? who was seated in the row in front of her. Did they meet after the fact when she was writing her book? Yeah, they met at a reunion, I believe, uh, for uh, people oh. who had been on the plane. It's like that um, we did that one interview with someone uh, who was on a, a, a plane crash. And the way he described it, um, the plane crash was like a great experience for him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess everyone survived this one, but uh, still, I'm so sure. So like, oh, I'm sure it was traumatizing, but like everyone survived and she like met her husband. Might have been a good thing. Uh, maybe so. And she wrote a book. Yeah, she wrote a book about it. Like, it's weird to think about something horrible or traumatic happening, but also changing someone's life for the better. Yeah, I, I've seen an interview with her. She, she's actually... I mean, obviously, she wrote a book. She 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 tells stories about this flight very well. She said that after the plane landed, and you know, she had, she knew she survived this uh, incident. She thought to herself, "Wow, this was amazing. Someone's going to write a book about this." Then she thought, "I'll write a book about it." Like, <laughs> so that's why uh, she went ahead and, uh, and wrote the book about it. So uh, British Airways continued to operate Flight Nine route from London to Sydney, but in March of 2012, this route was cut off at Bangkok, and the plane operating the route is now a Boeing Triple Seven. Uh, this particular plane, this 747 involved, the city of Edinburgh, was renamed the city of Elgin or Elgin and continued to fly for British Airways after the accident, but it was later sold to uh, European Aviation Air Charter. The plane was taken out of service in February of 2004, and in July of 2009, uh, at 30 years old, the plane was scrapped. So the plane no longer flies. It no longer exists. So wait, how old was it whenever it, this happened? It was like two years old? So this particular plane, this particular 747 was delivered March 27th of 1979. So it was just over okay. three years old because this was June of 82 when this happened. So it was still very much a, a new plane at the time. So the St. Elmo's fire, that was just like the like static and stuff reacting off of the, the dust? Yeah, it was like electrical charge between the volcanic ash and the plane. Okay, so it's just like okay. So if you uh, if you want to hear a little more, there's actually an interview by uh, Captain Moody on another podcast, the Flaps podcast, from back in 2010, where he talks about his experience on this incident. The airspace that they flew through around the volcano around Mount Galangog was closed temporarily after this incident and was reopened a few days later. But on July 13th, 19 days after this incident, a Singapore Airlines 747 flew to the same area and was forced to shut down three of its engines due to the ash in the air. Uh, Indonesian authorities then closed this airspace permanently and rerouted airways to avoid the area. And a watch was set up to monitor the clouds of ash from the volcano. Uh, that flight ended up making an emergency landing at Halim International Airport in Jakarta, and there were no injuries on that one either. So is it just that one kind of area? Yeah, is it's, it's prone to it. There's a lot of uh, volcanoes in that area. And in Indonesia, I think off the top of my head, I want to say like Indonesia might be the most active volcanic country in the world. Uh, mm. So it's like it's just an area you got to watch out for. And how do planes normally, mon you know, avoid volcanoes? Well, now there's there's watches, and now there's a lot more coordination with geologic experts to warn of okay. uh, of ash plumes and volcanic activity. That way, uh, flight paths can be coordinated. I use apps uh, on my phone to track planes. I, I really love aviation, in case you didn't know. I have apps on my phone that track planes, and one of the things that pop up on that app is volcanic activity. So, like, I'll see volcanic oh. activity around the world, and it warns you, like, you know, where areas that need to be avoided and, and things of that nature. So, there's definitely there's a lot more communication now. And with a lot more technology, uh, you know, it's easier to spread that information. Did people know what would happen 
prior to this of driving through ash like this? They, they may not have necessarily known. They probably suspected that this kind of thing would happen, but maybe there was no clear-cut way to, yeah. to deal with it. I don't think it, I don't think it yeah. had happened necessarily up to this point. Obviously, it's not something you wanted to go try. Like, right. Let's go try. <laughs> Let, let's not figure that out. So in October of 1984, the International Civil Aviation Organization issued a special report about the dangers of volcanic ash, like we just talked about, and they pointed mm-hmm. to British Airways Flight 9. The report suggested that if a pilot encountered a problem like this and there was enough altitude, they should reduce thrust to zero, descend, and leave the area as soon as possible. Consideration should be given to turning off engines and restarting them when clear of the ash and inside of the relight envelope of the aircraft. So basically, if you ever find yourself driving through a volcanic ash, turn off the engines and glide away. Well, not turn off necessarily. Just reduce your your thrust all the way to zero. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and keep in mind, if you do have to restart them, just keep in mind of uh, of that process. So that's uh, that's British Airways nine, uh, an interesting one. We since we're doing this with a live audience, we wanted to do uh, one that wasn't so terrible, one that ends with everyone surviving. Uh, hopefully, good. everyone enjoyed it. Um, as always, I always want to remind people to follow us on social media at Twitter and Instagram at Black Box Down Pod. Uh, we post lots of information there, lots of supplemental uh, images. Uh, you might you might see some things that you like there. And uh, if you do like this podcast, please give us a good review and refers to a friend. Refers to a friend that uh, that likes volcanoes. Wait, wait. We could do better than that because I don't know who's like. I love volcanoes. There's no volcano. Little guy. kids like volcanoes. Well, they like volcanoes. I don't know. There's a podcast for little children. Uh, <laughs> I don't curse. What about this? Re- refer us to someone who lives on a mountain or in okay, a mountain area. <laughs> Okay, fine. Refers to someone <laughs> a mountainous, who lives in a mountainous area. area. That could be like Colorado or something. Sure. Uh, I just do want to point out. I see here in chat, fake account to disable autoplay says that Indonesia has 139 active volcanoes. Iceland uh, is the second most in the world at 130, and Japan is third with 112. Okay, uh, we have a little bit of time left. We wanted to uh, to take the time to go ahead and uh, answer some other questions as well that uh, people have submitted via social media. Again, follow us at Black Box Down Pod. I and mean, we'll be keeping an eye on chat as well in case any other um, any other questions pop up. You still there, Dennis? Did you ever learn anything more about 747 engines? I'm here. Uh, I did not, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think <laughs> we I think we need to find an actual uh, like a 747 pilot to uh, to understand that one. Yeah. I guess we can uh, we can jump straight into the questions, right? So I asked people to submit questions via video. And only one person did. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and and play that one first. Hello, Gus and Chris. Love the podcast. Hope you guys keep it up. In the popular television show Breaking Bad, there was a plane crash caused by air traffic control. Has this ever happened in real life? And if it has, how catastrophic was the event? That came to us from at Nexocross on Twitter. So, y- yeah, I mean... Incidents can be caused by uh, air traffic control. There's quite a few uh, incidents that can do that. I think uh, Dennis pointed out that even uh, the Tenerife incident is considered as being partially air traffic control's fault. And that's the episode huh. that just came out today. Yeah. Uh, however, I, tr- I tried to find something as close as I could to the way things happen at Breaking Bad. So if you never saw Breaking Bad, uh, there's an air traffic... Spoiler. Yeah, spoiler. I think this is season three of Breaking Bad. There's an air traffic control person whose uh, daughter dies and he's super distraught and sleep deprived and he's distracted at work as a result of his grieving and him being distracted he doesn't notice and he causes two planes to collide in midair uh so yes in july of 2002 over uh, a town in southern germany over a town called 
Uberlingen, a passenger jet from Bashkirinian Airlines and a DHL 757 collided in midair uh, because the air traffic controller was, uh, he was basically, he was man- manning two stations and he was distracted and sleep deprived and he didn't notice. Uh, I, I don't want to get, we, I, this is actually a super interesting uh, incident. I, I, I want to potentially cover it in the future. So I don't want to get too far yeah, yeah. into the details here, but it's, it's very similar to what happened in that Breaking Bad episode. Eventually, a year and a half after the crash, the air traffic controller who was responsible for it got murdered uh, as an act of revenge by a man whose wife and children were involved in the accident. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, that, and that then, is, that yeah, is. It's, it's super wild. Uh, the murderer only spent two years in prison, uh, then he was released. It's, it's a super crazy story. Uh, hopefully we'll get yeah, to cover we should... that at some point in the future. I don't want to, so I don't want to like give too much away right now, but, uh, but yeah, it has definitely, uh, happened in the past. I guess I'll ask, I'll ask you guys this one. This comes from, let me pull up the name here. William M, uh, at Bankshift Bill on Twitter, uh, asks, mm-hmm. what is the scariest form of airplane crash? I think for me, from my perspective, the scariest kind would be right out, right on takeoff. Or right on the takeoff roll, or right after takeoff, mm, because so there's like, no, the plane can't stop. The plane has to just keep going, mm-hmm. and uh, whatever happens, happens. So I feel like we didn't mention this before, uh, Dennis. You're almost a pilot now, right? Are you are you a pilot yet? I'm almost a pilot. I have to take my final uh, exams, okay. but I'm this close. <laughs> to me, the scariest is up cruising altitude, forty thousand feet, and then something goes wrong, and it's the plummeting falling mm. to the ground if you think about it i mean like if you're a passenger on a plane like that you might pass out from hypoxia or you might you know if you don't have your oxygen mask on you might not even realize that it's happening until maybe at the very end well so it might, not, be scary. it might not be that bad yeah the thing scary for me gus <laughs> i'm just saying you might you might be all right i'm trying yeah. to, i'm trying to put you at ease for me the ones i don't like are the ones like Japan Airlines 123, where it's not the fault of the crew, it's not the fault of anyone on the plane. It's like the plane went through something and was repaired improperly years before. It's like there's no mm-hmm. way of knowing that. And then just all of a sudden, because someone did a bad job years in the past, you know, your your plane breaks apart or you're involved in an incident now. It's like there's no way you could have known that. It could have happened the flight before for that plane. It could have happened the flight after. It's just pure bad luck. And no, not because of anyone on the plane's right. messing up, yeah. Who's this? So I got another question here. Uh, this came from honestly a mess at <laughs> uh, Brazilian Axe uh, on Twitter. Uh, it says, "What incident was the one that made you guys really decide to start a podcast about aviation, or if it was just something that was always planned and ended up happening now?" Um, I think we talked about when we did United Two Thirty Two. Uh, that, that, that's like what intrigued me as a little kid and always made me uh, keep tabs on incidents. I don't know if anything happened here recently that made us start it now. Was there something that made you mm-hmm. want to start it now, uh, Chris or Dennis? No, I just I just thought it'd be fun to do. I just thought it'd be an interesting subject to cover. Yeah, I mean, I, I to me, it was just one of those things whenever you told me the idea, Gus, I was like, oh, this is a great idea. I love this idea. This is like super interesting. And I haven't heard anything like it. It's, those, it's like one of those primal fears I think everyone has in some way of like fall, an airplane crash, being on a plane. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being able to dissect it and really understand it is, is very 
I don't know, unique in that respect. Like you're almost like taking apart this thing that seems like so foreign and scary. Like, mm -hmm. oh, what do you do in a plane crash? How does it happen? But now all of a sudden you understand how it happens and yeah. why it happens. I think there's something, you know, primal in our brains the whole time we're on a plane that's like this isn't natural i shouldn't be up here yeah. <laughs> that's like, uh, that, that makes some people anxious but uh i think that i've read a lot of people say that listening to this podcast helps make them more calm about flying and it eases their fears because they realize that for something to go wrong it's so many different weird like one in a million things that has to happen for everything to line up for an yeah. incident to happen that like there's almost no chance of any of these things lining up and that when it does happen it's super interesting and that's why we talk about it. Like it's like all yeah. these things had to line up to go wrong in order for something bad to happen. Uh, let's see here. We got another one here from Michelle, which is at M. Michelle. It is, which incident was the most memorable to you that you've done on the podcast so far? Also, any hints to future incidents you'll cover? Well, for me, I think the Gimli glider, uh, because it was the first one and it was just so wild of a story. Mm -hmm. um, that one and man, this getting sucked out the the window mm -hmm. was that that that, that, that was episode was pretty like just nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me the value jet one mm. and then Air France. What was it? The one where four, they four, stalled over the ocean four four, four, four seven. seven. Yeah. yeah, where they stalled over the ocean because that's just it shouldn't it goes, happen. It, it goes against <laughs> all training to to stall right. a plane like that, and it's just it's it's bonkers how the pilots let that happen. The, the one where the, they crashed because the light bulb wouldn't oh, turn on? Yeah. yeah. Just because it's like such a small thing. Yeah, it should, it's something that should not happen. I have a little piece of the Gimli glider here, by the way. Uh, a listener uh, sent me a keychain, and this keychain's made out of uh, the skin of the Gimli glider. You can't, really, you can't read it, but it's got, it says, retired Boeing six, 767 Gimli glider, genuine skin, and it's numbered, tail number 604. Uh, I guess they, they, after they decommissioned the plane and cut it up, they made keychains out of it. Oh, I've also got... That's super cool. Uh, I think you all might have these too. Someone uh, made and sent in mm -hmm. black box oh. down coasters. Do you have yours there too, Chris? Give me one second. <laughs> he ran out of the room. I came back. His chair is just slowly spinning. <laughs> I, I got some one of those too, but mine is still at the office. I haven't gotten mm -hmm. to pick it up yet. I forget who sent it. I had the note here. I think I left it on my other desk upstairs. So it was, uh, it was Fruit Bat from the Kuli. That's back. right. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left. I think we only have like five minutes left. I want to try to go ahead and get through the uh, the rest of these. I, coffee breaks getting mad at me saying I didn't pay attention to chat. I see you right here. I just these people prepared <laughs> ahead of time. I want to take care of the people who send it in ahead of time. I, I just I wasn't sure what we would get if we'd get questions, so I prepared a bunch. Here well, I'll take one from chat right here. Scythel asks which airline that you've traveled on has had the best in-flight menu. Their vote is for Lufthansa. I've only flown on American. Oh, so American then? The, like food menu? Yeah. Oh, Qantas? Qantas is pretty good. They have good food, at least. I, I don't eat a lot on planes. I flew, uh, last year, I flew on Singapore Airlines, and that was so nice. The food was all awesome there. I think I took a picture of the menu. I was so impressed with it. Uh, Michael Caliterna at Gamerike asks, has this podcast honestly affected your fear or confidence in flying in commercial aircraft in the future? Um, I, th I think there's two things. I think I'd be a little more afraid... And maybe like initially, because I've flown so much, I just don't even think about plane crashes normally, you know, like I, I just, mm -hmm. I've got, I don't think about it, but I'm just probably thinking more about what could go wrong and more where, but I think that would just be initially just kind of like, since I haven't been on a plane so long. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't think it would make me more afraid or anything, but I do think a lot about 
like with the Japan airline flight, all those, you know, all those potential things that might just be waiting to happen. Right. That, that's the, yeah. That's, that who, who knows what's, what could be out there, mm-hmm. but it, I don't, it's, I don't think about it that much. Yeah. Same here. I've never, I've never been a nervous flyer. Even before Rooster Teeth, my previous job was a, was a travel job. I'd spent five days a week uh, flying and going to different uh, cities all around the U S. So I guess I'd been flying for long enough. I didn't care. I remember one time I was on a small uh, commuter propeller plane. I was flying from, I was flying from Madison, Wisconsin to Chicago because I had to catch a flight from Chicago to Austin. And uh, I was sleep deprived. I hadn't slept at all the night before. So I was asleep on the plane and uh, I was I had a window seat kind of next to the propeller. And all of a sudden I, I woke up because the plane uh, started a, a, a very strong bank to the left and uh, started dipping down. And I looked out the window and I could see the ground coming up and the plane, you know, banking pretty dramatically. And I just closed the shade and like <laughs> closed my eyes and went back to sleep. I was like, if we're crashing, I don't want to know. I'd rather just go to sleep. <laughs> I was so tired. Uh, I think I see Peter H. Uh, agreeing with my uh, Singapore Airlines best menu uh, claim. Mm. Uh, okay, uh, so there's a couple of questions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to combine a couple of questions here. Uh, that same person, Gamerike, uh, and Magenta Hazes kind of ask like about other incidents. Like, you know, well, there's only so many commercial aviation incidents in history. Uh, would we ever branch into military incidents? Or what about other disappearances like Amelia Earhart and other mysteries like that? Um, I don't know. I feel like we have a lot of commercial incidents to cover still. Uh, I'm not as confident and familiar with military aviation. The military planes are very crazy, very different than uh, civilian airliners. And I feel like I would be, I'm already a little out of my element because I'm not a pilot. I feel like I would be entirely out of my element trying to talk about uh, military aviation. So I'm going to, personally, I want to try to stick to to my wheelhouse. I don't know about you guys. I think it would be fun to branch out every now. I mean, we did the Akron in the first run and that was interesting. I think I think it'd be fun to possibly branch out, but yeah, but there's still a lot to cover. I, I like the idea of like randomly doing different ones just to mix things up and and just to you know to give different perspective on on different things. But um, I mean, also y'all are the ones that pick all the uh, episodes, <laughs> so we have yeah we have a meeting next week to go over. I just added a bunch more this morning uh, uh, onto our onto our potential future episode list, so I'm excited to go over that. But uh, we're at time. Uh, I do want to thank everyone for joining us here at RTX. And I thank everyone for supporting this podcast. Uh, we were, I, I think internally, there were some people who were unsure uh, if people wanted to listen to this and you all have overwhelmed us with the support. So thank you so much for that. I uh, can't say that enough. And uh, we'll see you guys again here real soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye.